Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he went alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mark 6, 45 through 52. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Paige and the band. Um, well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And in case you don't know, we, we actually don't haven't talked about it a lot recently, but our vision statement the, the guiding and framing thought, this thing that we're focused on as why we exist as a church, is that we are a multiplying church family learning and living in the good news of Jesus together in San Angelo. That's a lot of words. We're going to put it on a wall. We're actually going to uh, preach a sermon series in August about it, so you'll get to hear it again. Um, but that center of that vision statement, learning and living in the good news of Jesus. That is the, not just the center of our vision statement, it's the center of our lives. You may have heard the, the term gospel-centeredness, gospel centrality. That's what that means, that our whole lives are centered on the good news of Jesus, and that we, we pursue to learn it, and we live in it and from it. Um, but learning and living the good news does not come naturally to us. Even once we we confess belief in Christ, it does not just automatically come. It does not just automatically happen. I will say, though, that it is much more simple than we suspect it is. It may not be easy, but it is simple, okay? Um, So I noticed my life, uh, if I look back, just over the last few years, but it's, it's really been my whole life, there's this cycle where I'm working really hard, maybe even um, to be obedient to Christ, do things that he's called me to do. I'm working really hard to do those things, and then at some point, um, it becomes a mess, and then I end up praying and realize, oh, I need Jesus, and so then he reveals himself to me, and I'm strengthened and encouraged, and then um, it, whatever the problem was may, may resolve itself. There's some solution, and then I end up back in the cycle. Do you guys feel this way? Okay, maybe we feel like it says in verse 48, we feel in life in general that we are making headway painfully. Is that what life feels like? In this cycle of try really hard, um, pray, Jesus reveals himself, and then we just start it all over. 
We try really hard and we, we end up getting ourselves in a mess that we can't get ourselves out of and so he's gotta help us. That's what life feels like. And along the way, you probably feel pretty discouraged. You probably feel behind, right? You should be more mature than this. You should be a better Christian than this. You probably are wondering if you'll ever actually and really get the gospel. And you may even struggle with a whole number of doubts all along the way. We feel like the disciples in this passage rowing against the wind, making headway painfully. And I know this because it's my experience too. Um, it's just the human experience. It's, it's the human experience plus it's the human experience following Jesus that we make headway painfully. Um, I work really hard and I, I want to work really hard at being a better husband, at being a better dad, at being a better pastor and preacher because I know that if I can work really hard, then eventually this is just going to become natural. It's going to become easy. Then I'll be independent, right? I'll finally have matured, and, and there's just going to be a comfortable, easy path in life if I can eventually grow and get there. Some of us actually want to use that growth and maturity to impress God, that maybe he'll like us a little bit more if we're finally mature enough to do things without him. See, this is where I can see the origin of my sin in that I want to be like God. I want to be independent. I want to be in control. I want to be powerful rather than wanting to know God and be known by God. And so let me, let me just encourage you real quick because I'm, I'm sure that you're feeling some similar things that I feel. You're feeling maybe right now like you're making headway painfully. You are not behind. There's no wasted time in the kingdom. Okay? Jesus is in complete control of your sanctification. And the point of your sanctification is not actually your sanctification. Like, the, the whole purpose of your maturity is not so that you would be mature. It's so that you would know Christ. Jesus is using these cycles of making headway painfully to teach us something, to reveal himself to us, that we would know him deeper. And so this, this independence, this desire to be glorious, to be God, it comes naturally to us because of, of sin. Um, this cycle is, is just bound to happen. Um, so we pray it affects our prayers in that we pray when we know, okay, I've made too big of a mess that I can't get myself out of. Now I need help, right? Or um, we pray when we're praying for strength to do something on our own. So we're either praying for more independence or we end up praying because we're helpless and we're realizing, yeah, I'm, I'm in too big of a mess. Anybody? But when we get into these cycles, Jesus is giving us an opportunity to see him more clearly, to see him, um, to see the truth. Because we wouldn't actually say, um, yeah, I trust Jesus, 
uh, but really I've got this. We wouldn't say that, probably. But our lives might say something different. Our lives might tell a different story. And so um, when we get into these cycles, Jesus is giving us another opportunity to see him more clearly, to see that we tend to work on our own strength, that we tend to desire independence, that we tend to only come to him when we get really desperate and need something rather than making our whole lives about being dependent on him. Mark 6, 45 through 52, this passage that Seth just read for us reminds us that we cannot obey Jesus without Jesus. Our passage in Mark um, calls us to repent. It calls us to repent of living like we don't need Jesus all the time. It it calls us to repent um, saying and confessing and maybe even saying we believe something, but then our lives looking totally different. So it calls us to repent, and then it calls us to trust that we're forgiven and believe that Jesus is all we need, and Jesus is the only thing we need, and that we need him always. That's like saying three things, the same, the same thing three different ways. That's exactly what it is. Jesus is all we need. We only need Jesus, and we need him always, Okay? So as we spend this time, this anxiety, um, we spend a lot of effort rowing against the wind. I'm going to ask a few questions just just to let this kind of sink in a little bit deeper and give us a place to launch from. Um, Group leaders, I've got just a list of questions. They're not going to be on the projector, and that's on purpose because I want you to like internalize these and then think about them and, and talk to your group about these. Think about them throughout the week. But what is it that you've been striving to do, that you've been rowing against the wind to do on your own? What what things, maybe good things, maybe obeying Christ things, have you been doing without him? What are you called to do, but that you've been doing on your own strength? And I'm going to ask uh, two questions. It's the same thing, but from a a slightly different angle. What are you most afraid to lose or to fail at? Or what's the thing you've been praying that Jesus would just make easier for you? The thing that you just need a little bit more strength to accomplish. What is that? So this passage in Mark 6, Jesus walks on the water, certainly is the miracle that happens here, but there's a purpose to that. The purpose is that Jesus is revealing himself to the, to the disciples so that they would be strengthened and encouraged to depend on him. Not strengthened and encouraged to make it to the other side of the sea, but strengthened and encouraged to realize they need him. The thing that I want you most to understand from Mark 6, 45 through 52, is that we cannot obey Jesus without Jesus. So our text begins um, where our last story left off. 
Uh, Jesus had fed 5,000 men is what the text says. There's an estimate of about 20 to 25,000 people, men, women, and children that he feeds. How do you top that miracle? You walk on water. But we learn in our passage here that the disciples' hearts were hardened by that miracle. And so they didn't see from the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus really is this Yahweh God from the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God Almighty, God Most High. But we see uh, Jesus uh, and the disciples standing before the crowds, and then Jesus sends his disciples off to Bethsaida, and he stays on the shore. He says, you go over there. He tells them the direction to go. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to dismiss the crowds. There's a lot of speculation on what's happening there. Ultimately, if we look at the pattern of um, Jesus being confronted with these crowds, doing a miracle, and then what happens is he goes and prays, we see that Jesus goes to pray in isolation, in solitude, in silence, because he's depending on the Father's will. He's being tempted to do something on his own apart from the Father's will. We don't know what the crowds were asking him to do. We just know he dismisses them, and then he goes up to pray. And he goes up to pray by himself to align with the Father's will, to depend on the love of the Father alone, not the love of the crowds for the miracle he just performed, not their agendas, not even his being an amazing leader of the disciples but alone with the love and the will of the Father. So Jesus, what's important about this, because what we can look at solely is the miracle of walking on water. We cannot miss that Jesus models what he's calling the disciples to do. When we are tempted to do God's work on our own power, we respond to that temptation the way Jesus does, and we go in silence and solitude, maybe even for five minutes in the bathroom, because that's the only place we can have it. But we, we just get away for a minute and we pray in dependence on the love and the will of God. So after sending out the crowd, Jesus goes up to this mountain to pray. And we notice that in his most vulnerable and weak moments, and this is a pattern throughout Mark, throughout the Gospels, as you read um, all four of these gospel stories, look for that pattern. When does Jesus go to pray? It's when he's most vulnerable and weak. And we know he's weak because scripture tells us that he experienced the same kind of human weakness, yet he did not sin. When he's vulnerable and weak, Jesus draws near to the Father to show that when we're vulnerable and weak, we have the same privilege, the same opportunity So this crowd is gone, and Jesus comes down from the mountain, um, and he goes to the shoreline sometime at night. Now, I will say, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. To get from one end to the other is a two-hour trip. The disciples left long ago, before sundown, and now it says it's the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they've been at it for a long time. And remember, these are expert fishermen. They know boats. They know rowing. They know the storms. 
They know the sea. They're at it for hours because they know Jesus told us to go in this direction, so I'm going. And I just had this picture as I was reading and I was just trying to meditate on this passage and and imagine it. I had this picture of Jesus standing on the shore. It says in verse 47, evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And I just imagine him sitting there with the gusts of wind blowing his beautiful hair and those wavy robes. And he's looking out on the sea and he just sees probably not very far off the disciples rowing hard and rowing and rowing and rowing. And just like the wind's blowing straight back at him. Maybe if they just would have stopped rowing, the wind would have pushed them right back to Jesus. We don't know that. But what we see is this striving, this, their attempt to obey Jesus without him in the boat. And how's that going for them? How's that going for you? So finally, Jesus walks off the shore and onto the water. He comes to the disciples, and we see in, this, um, in the middle of this passage the very strange statement in verse 48. He saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. That's not the weird thing. Here's the weird thing. He meant to pass by them. But they saw him. So he was close enough. So we, we know he wasn't just trying to like show up on the other side. He'll do that at some point. But we know that he was actually trying to be seen by them. And so I want to focus on this phrase, he meant to pass by them. Because this pass by is a phrase that Mark's audience, the disciples certainly would have known. This phrase passing by is a reference to many Old Testament Uh, stories where God made himself pass by someone in a revelation. We see it in Job 9 when Job says, if he passed by me, I would not see him. If he called out to me, I would not hear him. If he revealed himself to me, he's talking about God, I would miss it because I'm just too weak, I'm just too human, and he's too great and glorious. We also see in 1 Kings 19, God reveals himself to Elijah through fire and earthquakes and wind, these terrifying things, and then he reveals himself. He passes by. God actually says, I will pass by you, and the way that he passes by him is in a whisper, not in this incredible force of nature, but in a whisper. And then um, in Exodus 33, God reveals himself to Moses. We, we, we may know this story. If we've been uh, reading the Bible long enough, we've been around church long enough, we probably know there was a point where Moses asked God, will you show me your glory? And God said, yes, but if you see me, you'll die. So I'm gonna stick you in a rock and then I'm gonna pass by you and I'm gonna tell you who I am. I'll tell you what I look like. These um, revelations of God, when he 
draws near to his people when actually he, he is near, he's revealing to his people that he's near. These instances, we call these a theophany. You just learned a seminary word. Can you say it? Theophany. Theophany, thank you. Um, some of you participate, some of you don't. I'm the guy in the crowd that doesn't participate. I'm like, you're not gonna tell me what to do. So that's okay, no hard feelings. A theophany is God revealing himself to his people. It's usually a small number of people. But the purpose of the theophany is so that those people would be strengthened and encouraged to see something in God bigger and greater and more to be feared in him, that they would worship him and that they would submit to him, that they would depend on him in all things. And so we see in Exodus 33 and 34, a theophany, an incredible theophany. Let's read in Exodus 33, verse 19. And he said, this is God talking to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I wish I could preach Exodus 33, 19 right now. Now, this is a, a, a few moments before God actually does pass by. Moses needs a little prep time uh, a, a few months before God passes by Moses. But look in verse, uh, in Exodus 34, verses six through eight. This is the moment when God does pass by Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Remember, Moses is in the rock. He can't see anything but probably blinding light. The Lord, the Lord. That's in English. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh, Yahweh a God merciful and gracious. God is revealing himself to a man and the thing he chooses to reveal about himself is not what he looks like. It's not what he can do, but his character. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That covers all of it. But who will by no means clear the guilty, those who reject God? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen to what Moses responded with. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now this moment is right before Moses leads the people into the wilderness to go on their way into the promised land. Now they spend 40 years in the promised land. What God is revealing himself to Moses for is not this great conquest in the land of Canaan. He's revealing himself so that Moses would be strengthened and encouraged during these 40 years to depend on God alone, not on what Moses wants to do. How many times in those 40 years do you think Moses was tempted to just, just pick up your swords and let's go? But Moses needed the kind of faith that would say, God, no matter what the outcome 
of this time is, I will trust you. So God revealed himself to Moses so that his trust would be in God, not in his own abilities or the size of his army. This theophany gave Moses the courage to depend on God. Doesn't that sound strange? That we would need courage to depend on God. But that's what these theophanies are for. Jesus, meaning to pass by the disciples, was setting up this moment where Jesus would proclaim his goodness and mercy. He may have planned to even say the same words, steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving, iniquity, transgression, and sin. We don't know. He meant to pass by them. But in this passing by, the disciples were terrified. They found themselves in fear, not because they were, they were fearful. Oh, Jesus is God. Let's bow down in, in, in fear of him. But because they had no thought that Jesus could or would walk on the water to them. And we know that's true because at the very end of our passage in verse 52, it said they didn't understand about the loaves. What Jesus was communicating with the loaves was that he's fully God this God from Exodus 33 and 34, and that he alone will satisfy them, and they didn't see it. And so he walks on the water to pass by the disciples to proclaim to them his goodness and his mercy. Notice, he came to them. He didn't remain on the shore and wait until they sunk or their boat broke or they just gave up. He came to them in their painful headway and revealed himself to them. Jesus is giving the disciples not just a knowledge, not just a teaching of his nearness. They're giving, he's giving them an experience of his nearness because it's that experience that they will need to depend on as they continue to go out. We learned earlier in chapter six that Jesus sent out the disciples to do his work. Later, we'll find out in chapter nine that they start to do his work on their own power. They confront a demon that they can't cast out of somebody. And Jesus says, well, if you just would have prayed. So we see this cycle that we fall in. We see it in the disciples of, I'm gonna do God's work, but without God. I'm gonna obey Jesus, but without Jesus. And Jesus, time after time, comes to them kindly, mercifully, forgiving, and reveals himself to them. Jesus reveals his identity as God to the disciples to teach them that they cannot obey him without him. And because it's in the text, I felt like an appropriate application is prayer. Like I said earlier, Jesus models this for us. And one of the things that, that I thought about was how our dependence on God, there's like this mirrored effect. Whatever our dependence on God is, our lives will reveal that 
through our prayer life. Now, I know that all the things I'm about to say about prayer will probably make you feel shame. Because we, we as a people, in general, fall into one of two camps, maybe both, maybe kind of a spectrum, where we feel like we're just bad prayers, right? I'm a bad Christian because I don't pray well, I don't pray enough. But we also can find ourselves on the other side of the spectrum thinking, well, I kind of just know everything I need to know about prayer. There's not anything else I need to learn. Maybe we've had some pretty terrible experiences in our upbringing with prayer, what we think prayer is, what prayer has been taught to us. And so we feel that tremendous weight of shame. Or maybe we just lack a lot of understanding that prayer, it's not just these words that we say, but prayer for the Christian is like breathing. It's the life of the Christian. If we truly depend on Jesus in everything, always, and only him, then what else are we to do but pray? But again, let me encourage you, you are not behind. I feel that shame of feeling like I'm just always beginning. And I've, I've been a Christian for 18 years. And I always feel like I'm just beginning. But what, what sin causes us to do is it causes us to live with this disposition that we don't need to pray because we don't need God yet. It causes us to live with this disposition um, that I'm only gonna ask for help when I really need it or, or we forget. That's probably where I land the most is I just forget to pray. I forget that I'm dependent. Um, I use this example. I was explaining my sermon to a friend uh, earlier this week and because he was experiencing a very similar struggle uh, and he lives on the other side of the world. Uh, so it's just, it's kind of crazy how this week was something I needed this text my friend who lives in Southeast Asia needed this text. Uh, and so we got to talk about it. And one of the things that came to mind, this word picture that I decided to put in here is, uh, so I'm remodeling our bathroom. And yeah, you laugh, you should. <laughs> um, just pat my wife on the back and say, I'm so sorry. Um, it really, like the bathroom's small enough and it's, it's simple enough work to where I can do the work on my own until maybe, I don't know if this happened, not making any definitive statements here, but maybe say someone busts the hot water pipe. Well, I literally could not keep up on my own. And I won't get into all the nasty details about how we were dumping water from the, the leak into the bathtub and a shot back in it. That's a whole long story. The point is, that's when I called for help. I probably should have called for help sooner. I know I should have. But I didn't call for help until there was blistering hot water pouring all over my arms and my floor. And I couldn't turn the shutoff valve at the curb. I couldn't do it. And then I called 
for help and we got the hot water turned off. I didn't know you can turn it off at the water heater. I learned something. <laughs> See? But as I was reflecting on this message, I was like, man, that's a lot like this text. We're going to work hard and think we know what we're doing until the whole situation shows us that we really don't. Our whole life is this way. Um, theologian Ian Bounds talks about this. Uh, just a, 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 little, a little quote, because I have a long one here in a second. Ian Bounds says that little prayer is a greater evil than no prayer. Because little prayer keeps us in the delusion that we actually pray. Um, pastor John Anwuchekwa, he's a pastor in Atlanta. He wrote a book about prayer. It's small and it's orange, and it's called Prayer. He knows how to title books. But he explains, he uses this quote, this Ian Bounds quote in his book, and then he explains it for us. And, and he kind of is coming from this, um, this perspective of church-wide prayer, but really the, the, the prayer life of a church reflects the prayer life of its people. And so he's going to use this word infrequent prayer. And what I want you to be thinking of when he uses this word infrequent prayer, because I can't just read to you the whole first chapter. What he's talking about is this tendency we have to only pray when we really need it or when we want more strength, not to live a life of prayer, a life of breathing prayer where we're constantly dependent on God. So here's the John Anwuchekwa quote. He says, Infrequent prayer teaches a church that God is needed only in special situations, under certain circumstances, but not all. It teaches a church that God's help is intermittently necessary, so only here and, that, here and there necessary, not consistently so. It leads a church to believe that there are plenty of things we can do without God's help. And we need... We need to bother him only when we run into especially difficult situations. You feeling that shame now? Me too. Um, as we're feeling this shame for thinking we, would, we could be so prideful to to assume we know all we need to know about prayer. Or as we feel the shame, knowing we're bad prayers. Let me just respond with one thing. Take heart. Because Jesus still comes to you like he came to the disciples. He will still reveal himself to you. There is no wasted time in the kingdom. He's using these cycles. He's using this tendency we have to reveal himself more and more and more to us that we need him. Jesus crafts these moments to teach us by experience because our knowledge, like we don't have the valve to go from our head to our hearts. That's not under our control. So we can know all we need to know but really when it sinks into our lives is when we experience it. 
And so Jesus crafts these moments by experience that we would know that we need him, we only need him, and that we always need him. Um, the best advice I have for you, if you are feeling either both uh, the shame of, of having that pride or just the shame of not, not measuring up, what I, the best advice I have for you is if you really want to pray, pray, and then Jesus will teach you to pray. If you really want to pray, pray, and Jesus will teach you to pray. The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. This is my like 21st century in modern English version of that. Prayer is both how we practice and learn dependence on Jesus because we can't obey him without him. Now, let's go back to that word theophany. Theophany, Jesus is God's greatest theophany. This Exodus 33 and 34 theophany in the flesh. The steadfast love and kindness of God put on human skin. The forgiveness and mercy and faithfulness of Yahweh wore clothes, slept in a tent. Jesus is God's greatest theophany. And for those who believe that Jesus is steadfast love and mercy, forgiveness for generation after generation, then we take together, we take communion, we take the bread and the cup, this weekly theophany. But for those who do not believe, the guilt of rejection will not be overlooked. And this is true because Scripture repeats it, that it's true. But it's never too late. It's never too late to see this theophany of Jesus, to turn, to repent of working so hard on our own and just to trust Jesus to work hard for us, to, to be righteousness for us, to be salvation for us, you don't have to get on the cross. It's already been dealt with. It's already been finished. For those who believe, who receive the steadfast love and mercy of Jesus, communion is a weekly theophany reminding us of the ultimate revelation of God's love to us in Jesus, that he died an innocent and sacrificial death for our forgiveness and for fullness of life forever with him. Guys, Jesus is all we need, but we can't obey him without him. So for often, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you proclaim the Lord's death, please join me at the table.